California as as uh, as part of the overall Amtrak ridership nationwide before the big infusion of funding in California back in 1990. And that percentage was in the 2% range. After 16 years, uh, now California uh, is uh, making up about 20% of the total Amtrak ridership nationwide. Today in Florida, it just happens to be that our percent of total Amtrak ridership is about 2 to 3%. So hopefully, maybe in less than 15 years, we can, uh, we can do the same thing like you know, in California. Uh, with that, uh, our next speaker today is uh, Ms. Ann Witt. Uh, Ann is Amtrak's Vice President for Strategic Partnerships and Business Development, where she is responsible for four areas critical to Amtrak's and uh, to their company's growth strategy, including state partnerships, commuter partnerships, freight railroad relationships, and real estate. This is Ann's sixth Amtrak Vice Presidency, as she had earlier service with the company back in the late 90s and early 2000s. As a former Amtrak CEO put it, quote, I give Ann our problem organization and she straightens them out so others can run them, close quote. Before her return to Amtrak, Ann served as director of the District of Columbia Department of Motor Vehicles. Prior to that, Ann was the deputy director of environmental protection for Montgomery County, Maryland. Ann's presentation will focus on Amtrak's strategic plans and the upcoming five-year federal reauthorization. Please join me in welcoming Ann Witt. Yes. Good morning. Thank you. On that, uh, we give Ann our problem organizations. Another friend of mine just called me the career pinata. <laughs> Things that people can complain about. Um, wanted to talk today, and you'll notice a question mark throughout here. This is a changing time for our mode, for our company, and all of us, and talk about um, the changes and how we look at ourselves and how the nation is looking at rail as we talk about the future of inner city rail. And since the agenda did promise that we would talk about, get this to get out of the way. Um, there we, I don't know how to. Okay. Uh, the authorization, um, and Frank's already talked about a gene in a sense, but those are, you'll see numbers. I haven't put dollar signs on that yet because it isn't money. Um, it is a discussion about an authorization, but in the, the history of Amtrak, those are very big numbers. In the history of the need that Frank talked about, um, if you look at, uh, for example, the percent of uh, the capital, which is in the third, the middle, about a billion dollars a year, the percent that is proposed to come via Amtrak to the states, via Amtrak authorization <coughs> to the states in uh, federal grants on 80-20 match, we're still only talking about um, 800 million when you add up everything for the high-speed rail and the regular rail. In this case, it's about 400 million a year. It's about a tenth of the kind of need Frank talked about. On the other hand, compared to zero or 30 million, it's starting to come to some significant money even today and before the growing discussions around our mode and uh, the nation's transportation dilemmas will really be taking form and escalating in the next year. So um, as Frank said, uh, or uh, it is not yet an, an, even an authorization and on the appropriation. Uh, in the Senate, we do have some interim numbers um, proposed, but again, everything's pending. Um, held up as, as uh, he told the story, and I won't reiterate, 
Amtrak is an interesting animal. It is a uh, private company with a public purpose charter and a commercial sector mandate for profitability <laughs> with a political board um, that is a point that is subject to the, the whims of um, various points of view. And it basically was designed to fail after about three years when it was created in 1971 and 37 years later says we can't go out of business and we can't really quite succeed either. Um, we think some of that is beginning to change. Um, we, because of, uh, we are also unique in that we are a, a company that is a mode. There isn't another one of these right now. And that's all. Now that the mode, I believe, is re-emerging, the company will go through whatever change is or isn't appropriate to that. But the, we're, we're committed that the mode survive uh, above all. And we think in the process, uh, the company can do well as well. So as a corporate goal, we are really looking at uh, an increase of intercity passenger rail ridership by 50% by 2020. Not a heavy lift, given what we're seeing in the last years, actually, but they're pretty stunning numbers. And Gene's slide already talked about how that could happen, and you could still talk about cutting operating support at the same time. And we hope to do that, especially through expanding intercity rail corridors, leveraging our position, um, and advocacy federally with respect to the matching funds and also uh, concurrent public investment in the freight infrastructure. Um, we'll talk about that some more. And our unique position in an operating expertise. We are the National Railroad Passenger Corporation and have had uh, 37 years of experience and a lot to bring to the discussion. Um, the current Amtrak, and the Amtrak I was hired on to the first time around really saw itself as a national network. Over the t 90s, we became a national network with quarters. And as uh, has already been talked, and three of our quarter partners are here, 14 states contract for 15 quarter services around the nation, which basically means that they're stepping up to help invest in the development of that quarter and provide the operating support that makes the gap between the passenger revenue and the total cost. Um, so from a national network of long distance trains to a national network that has quarters, and I think what we're gonna see, and for illustration only, is a really a network of corridors that has a footprint on and is connected by a network. And this is of course illustrative in that, uh, but it is where the future of inner city rail is and how Amtrak is beginning to think of itself. The um, preaching to the choir, perhaps, or perhaps not certainly on the panel, um, corridor growth really does have national benefits in terms of mobility, uh, urban centers in particular, and dense population centers where we're seeing the incredible ridership gains, but truthfully, across the system, we're seeing those gains. There uh, are arguments for security and multimodal redundancy, um, the environmental issues, the vehicle miles traveled impacts that Jean already talked about are increasing awareness of rails, relative benefit on the environmental footprint compared to other modes, energy consumption benefits, economic development that can be spurred, and the intermodalism that can be gained if it's done deliberately and with, uh, I would argue, a little more uh, rational national policy. Uh, have huge benefits for the nation in terms of inner city rail and corridor. 
the states have clearly spoken about the potential benefit, and you've heard from them and are hearing from them directly. But to me, it is a stunning fact. Uh, looking at the kinds of investments that Gene talked about in California, Wisconsin has made, North Carolina, you'll hear, and others, that even without a penny of federal match, these are people that could have spent that 20 cents and gotten 80 for it, and instead spent the whole dollar and got nothing back to do inner city rail to the tune of an FYOA, $180 million in operating support and capital that has continued to go over the years. That is a stunning statement of the importance of the mode in these states when it's being played in on a very uneven playing field. And the mode itself is being benefited by corridors. We project our growth, uh, the long distance market has actually been growing but is pretty well <coughs> defined in terms of what its uh, modal purpose is and stays relatively constant. The Northeast Corridor has been growing, but candidly is hitting the maximum of its infrastructure capacity, is certainly up against its equipment capacity in the morning, and that, that trend is stopping. And to give Gene another bit of ammunition, in July, the California surfliners exceeded the ridership of Acela for the first time. Uh, the California markets and when there is, where there is ability to grow, we're seeing the growth, and we are now constrained in the Northeast Corridor. Write it down. Uh, and, and it is in the quarters, as Frank said, where um, the mode is growing the fastest. And that growth is health Amtrak, and it's bottom line. This is uh, the monthly report that comes out every time. And if you look on the revenue line, um, overall Amtrak's grown at 14%. The quarters grew at 16.8% in revenue. And state quarters tend to have fairly uh, low rail prices, it's a matter of their policy. Compared to a, a ticket LA to San Diego is about, it's under $20. A ticket Washington to New York is $200, uh, just because of what the market can bear and what the options are. So those revenue numbers get very skewed. But you see, particularly on the ridership numbers, where the growth has been, it is in the corridors and uh, continues to show um, month over month and stunning growth system-wide. And I think that um, 30 million rider number may even, Frank, uh, be hit this year if things keep up. You mentioned 35% of all Amtrak riders, already up to 49% of Amtrak riders. 300 million in our ticket revenue, that's 21% of our total. As we mentioned, the prices tend to be lower, but that's up 30%. 170 million of state support comes additionally through this, uh, the subsidy, and then for Amtrak another 130 million in additional contribution because we have a fixed network, fixed cost. Any any business knows if you can grow over that fixed base, you're spreading those costs around, and then our connecting ridership, the people getting off a quarter train and getting onto a different Amtrak train, has also brought a potential financial benefit to Amtrak. Same graph again showing what's growing and what's getting capped out and the green, our short distance corridors are really driving those numbers. Another interesting look is where is the growth happening by, by trip length? Because we have trains that go long distances but while they're there are covering incremental corridors. Uh, <coughs> is a great example. The train starts in New York and is coming all the way down. On our silver service, we found this year that 
the silver trains, uh, again, running from New York down through Florida. 36% of the growth on those trains, those long-distance trains, were intra-Florida travel. So long-distance trains have taken on corridor characteristics, and it is, again, an indication of the public's interest in having that kind of uh, transportation choice, even as they also serve longer markets. And if you look overall, the, the growth in our service is really happening at the shorter end, the more where, where rail is most competitive in the zero to 500 mile segments, even as it does uh, show growth in some of the longer quarters as well. Um, they're sort of the perfect storm we talk about for corridor growth. Uh, the <coughs> FRA safety wouldn't really go over too well, but it feels like that on many of our trains. Standees and sold out conditions where uh, equipment uh, constraints are facing us. But the repopulation of city centers, uh, USA Today, I pulled it out. I just have to wave it. Um, this morning in the room. Uh, Airlines rising fees confuse and anger their passengers. Um, this is pushing people to consider rail for the first time, and we're finding when they try it, they've lost it. Our customer service satisfaction scores are at their highest point. We've been working hard with our employees to have that be the case. So once they try, they stay. Commuter fatigue, congestion, I don't need to read the whole list. These are the worlds that we're working in. Um, more and more intermodal opportunities. And we're seeing, we have our host railroad partners here, also the same kinds of pressure on the freight rail network and the new conversation about potential public investment in the entire uh, network of rail throughout the country. Frank led one of these studies, um, but in general, the policy consensus seems to be merging around corridor growth. You'll see we threw a McCain up there because he's not always been known as a great Amtrak um, fan, but uh, the acknowledgement of the mode and the, its role in quarters is even something that passed legislation um, that he sponsored, uh, acknowledged and supported. So uh, we are hoping and working toward having our mode recognized in the modal debate and the reauthorization in the world that you manage in terms of the synergies and especially to look at managing infrastructure investments that benefit all rail uh, as we have to expand this mode, commuter, inner city, and freight. Jean had a great slide showing that it is a network and how it all works together. Um, we're seeing more and more localities uh, invest in shared facilities where we could bring together services and connectivity for the riding public. We're seeing the, the public host railroad capacity investments being associated with returns on passenger trains. Jean talked about the relationship with UP, especially BNSF in the California. That was billions of dollars invested. That was not billions of dollars just given away. That was in return for commitments on slots for the OTP kinds of performance. Florida, <coughs> in partnership with CSX, talking about similar types of arrangements that could benefit the outcomes for passenger rail. And that is just going to be the reality of how we will, have, we will be able to grow all of our modes to make this work. And we're seeing that air rail connectivity. Uh, in the Amtrak system, Baltimore, Milwaukee, um, up in... Uh, 
Pro near Providence in um, Newark, where we have connections to airports, have been some of our fastest growing ridership stations throughout the system. And there is a real uh, ability to make the modal choices convenient for and appropriate to the passenger base. So how do we do it? Because the way it's happened so far isn't going to work anymore. Uh, we have these 14 corridors and the ones that happened uh, so far, and they were either inherited with the network, legacy corridors of Gene Paulson, when, when everything was handed over to Amtrak in the early 70s, and the law allowed for Amtrak to keep running those, and then created what back then was called the 403B uh, provisions that allowed states to purchase uh, and run additional quarters through Amtrak. Those standards and, and definitions changed over the years. There's never been the matching funds. Until this year, the, the symbolic first $30 million that opened the door that we hope is going to swing quite wide and we'll be pushing for. But there has been an artificially constrained ability to invest as a result of that modal imbalance. Back though, when people uh, did get in the business, the capital hurdles were really lower. Amtrak had surplus equipment. The federal government had bought it once, and so people said, hey, we could use it. And Amtrak made it available. States might have spent money to overhaul it um, and put it back in service and maintain it after that. But there was no initial upfront capital fee to the state or a recapitalization cost. That was probably a mistake in retrospect. <laughs> but it's the reality, because there is now 68 more pieces of equipment left for the country, period. That's it. And we need it for our own service, and states are clamoring for it, and we are really up against the wall in terms of uh, capitalization for fleet. And likewise, the host railroads were less congested at the time. And so whatever the hurdles were to make the investments as uh, states went in um, were relatively easier than today in many quarters. Um, and so the and in each state, it was very, I would, I would argue when you often decided three, it was almost personality-based. If there was a true believer in a state that was willing to champion the mode and go out and make it happen, it happened. And if there wasn't, it didn't, because it really was almost bucking transportation policy as opposed to implementing policy. Um, that's not our world anymore. And so in the future, we do think that the support of federal funds is inevitable, it's begun. Uh, state DOTs are, look at the turnout here, state DOTs are acknowledging the need for inner city rail as part of state transportation choices. There are going to have to be investments in railroad infrastructure and capacity for freight as well as passenger. It requires station improvements, which typically become partnerships with localities, and of course, the ability to procure rolling stock. There is no U.S. manufacture of inner city rail equipment fairly stunning uh, realization, but just to get that industry going again, and there are a lot of states interested in being, even for economic stimulus, being the host of such uh, business, but uh, we believe that's going to change. We think that uh, there's a benefit, and the states have been talking and will continue about having some standardized equipment pool, so at least we get interoperability around equipment, economies of scale on orders, et cetera, and find that probably that at least the categories of equipment that are appropriate, the single level uh, <coughs> units such as 
the tilt equipment that you from in Washington State Talgo service. There's also uh, the Amfleet and Horizon equipment that's already in use throughout the country, but getting some consensus around single level vehicles. The bi-level units such as we've been used in California, a DMU for the less uh, dense areas, and then a higher speed diesel locomotive are the areas where we've been focusing our attention to try to come to some consensus around procurement for equipment. And then to really wrestle with, you see the question mark, a defined corridor system as the task force did, but to, as opposed to an ad hoc approach, will there begin to be a designation like the federal highway system? There was the federal high-speed rail corridors that have been identified by the FRA, but then how do they get to be something? How do they start to develop? Where is our policy around what happens? Are there tiers of investment that we could encourage the federal government to, to make to spur some of these things around making up terms now? Note the question mark. Quarters of national significance. Gene pointed out nine frequencies and up is where we're seeing that tipping point for modal share. When they're hitting eight and nine, that his graph jumped way up. Five and six show strong regional significance. Uh, Milwaukee, uh, Chicago is there and growing, heading up to that eight, nine level. There might be ways for us to collectively talk about uh, relative strategies around a, a corridor growth network and then how the federal government's role could be redefined and escalated as it has been in the transit world. Amtrak thinks it brings a lot to the table. We have our sordid history. We are the people uh, that you either love to love or love to hate or some of both. But we do have a lot of, we do have the railroad expertise uh, in operating trains. We're very proud of that. And our partners are, are quite um, complimentary of our operating expertise. Mechanical, that's uh, a less clear story, but clearly a, a, a strong focus of our company, knowing that's something we've got to uh, be able to deliver to be a good partner. Um, we have had in the past access to equipment. We certainly still have access to the equipment expertise and ability to spec procure and, and uh, play a role, we hope, in being helpful in solving the equipment crisis. We do have our statutory access to the host railroad at incremental cost. Um, that is um, something that as the corridors are expanding, states come and uh, work with Amtrak in the middle to then talk to the host railroads and we'll talk about that process. And it, it's necessary to start that process very early uh, because while it's incremental cost, it is not free and it takes and capacity has to be managed, acknowledged, and developed in that process. Uh, we have uh, insurance and liability coverage that is, as, as a matter of practical reality, almost impossible to duplicate. And um, access to IT systems and support that could potentially be less expensive than, than others to build if a state chooses to participate in it. And an ability to do a turnkey or startup service for our own or, or bundled services uh, for a state and uh, obviously our national visibility and voice uh, when, when necessary to help try to advance the discussion, uh, particularly at the federal level. To get into a quarter is not one of those things. I think there have been some states and knowing the political process, there are some states that think it's a press release. Um, you know, we're going to run trains and um, that happens, but it doesn't really run trains. 
um, it takes a lot of uh, due diligence. There is the process around market demand forecasting, then um, identifying a route, seeing what the ridership potential is, coming up with a, a, a service scenario, modeling what those infrastructure investments would need and what the capacity analysis is, typically with the host railroad and the tools that they use because it's their network, they're going to need to manage it. That comes back with a list of what investments would be required at what level to have it be successful, identifying the performance characteristics in terms of speed, on-time performance, number of stops, frequencies, and then building up a P&L around, you know, what are the costs and what are the projected revenues against these scenarios and investments. Those investments being the obvious ones of equipment stations, the rail infrastructure, and the support facilities. Somebody pays the operating loss. There are rarely, there are some, but rare services <coughs> that cover everything above the rail. You get up into those nine and 10 frequencies, uh, it starts to get closer and closer, but there, it, it is the nature of this business uh, that the operating loss is covered. And then, uh, and it takes time. It's typically for this entire process, a three to five year process from thinking of the idea to launching the service. That would be somewhat affected by what kinds of infrastructure is there already, um, and what shape it is, et cetera, what the availability of equipment is. But it, it is a, it, it's not a frivolous process. And then uh, more and more it's taking the modal leadership, somebody who can say the vision, sell the vision, and uh, start the success story that Gene talked about that tends to bring then the additional attention and ridership. So we have a lot in front of us. We Amtrak, and I think we, uh, we those who are interested in the mode, which is around solidifying and consolidating, if possible, the lead stakeholder leadership and message so that people are hearing it over and over from the various voices uh, and the various stakeholders uh, in terms of the advancement of the mode. We clearly need to stimulate equipment supply. We are working internally to see if we can't guide a discussion around uh, network criteria that might be able to help inform more of a federal role in the mode. We want to and are, have continued to work with the states to advance the authorization bills and the appropriations ultimately so that we can uh, have more of the federal funds. And have been talking about <coughs> whether it's time for a rail caucus on Capitol Hill. Um, hasn't been one and that, that might be an appropriate moment. Have the proper links with the public investment in freight rail. Uh, AAR and others are talking to us more uh, and there are clearly opportunities for both all of the modes and, and we obviously feel strongly that public investment has to be linked to a public return and we see an opportunity there in terms of passenger rail. We internally are working on better financial reporting systems and pricing systems because we can make our partners crazy without it. Um, and we aren't a good partner unless we can have good service both at the management and administrative level and um, on the rail. And as other sessions at this conference have talked about, replenishing the railroad workforce expertise at this time when there's a major blip in retirements right as we're looking at, at a uh, bubble in growth is a real challenge for everyone and, and one that Amtrak is very engaged in. So that's an overview. Other than that, not much to do. Uh, it's an exciting time to be involved in uh, passenger rail. Thank you very much. Thank you.